as onward I go, I see many great sights to behold. But none will compare to the beauties of heaven, where the half has never been told. I started this journey at an altar of prayer, where he gloriously saved me that day. and trials, but he's been near me each step of the way. What a journey this journey has been with my Lord, walking and talking with him. He has ever been faithful, there by my side, on him I can be filled. steps may grow weary.
Everybody gather in. Little ones get up front. Everybody stand up. Welcome everybody this morning. We appreciate the great crowd we have there this morning. All the kids are up here. I'm um, sure everybody. Uh, we're excited to see this many kids up here and this good of a crowd for Sunday school. We appreciate it. That first song they sung, um, the very best me that you'll ever see is when you're living for Jesus. Yeah. That's, uh, that's so true. Uh, it's easy to get caught up uh, in the world. We all got responsibilities and things we have to do, but when we're focused on uh, what God has for us and doing His work, that's you know that's the best that's the best person we can be. And uh, I've noticed in my own life, you know, uh, you get off focused on something else, and uh, it seems like uh, you're just not where you need to be. And uh, when you're focused on the Lord's work and uh, trying to read and 
get in your Bible and pray and uh, just do the things you need to do every day. It just seems, you know, life's just better and smoother that way. But we appreciate being here and uh, look forward to having a great day in the Lord. And uh, I'm going to ask Brother Kenny Hall, would you dismiss this Sunday school? Well, it's good to be here this morning. Appreciate everybody for coming out. And uh, we're going to be in the seventh chapter of Revelation today. And so um, I'm excited about this lesson. I ask for your prayers. I always need those. Uh, I've, I've had so many thoughts. I told Carl this morning I've probably written down way more in my notes and, and I'm, uh, in my book than I'll, I'll get to. But I've got a couple of goals uh, with this lesson. First, I want to talk a little bit about who was this man, John, uh, and, and what did he experience uh, prior to writing the book of Revelation. And I'll give you my thoughts on that. Uh, and I'd say it's pretty universal about who John is, although there is maybe a little disagreement uh, with theologians. Uh, but I think if you look at some things that happened to who I think John is, the same person, uh, I think it helps explain some of what he's seeing and trying to explain in Revelation. Um, so that's number one. And then with Revelation, and I, Carl and I were talking about this uh, on, on Wednesday night, with the book of Revelation, if I can get it chronologically in the right place, then it, I, it helps explain the book and it helps uh, me understand more of what it's doing. And uh, so I'm going to try to explain to you where I believe chronologically these things take place. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of symbolism in, in here. Uh, it's, it's a spiritual, uh, it's a, a natural book written, written down on paper trying to describe what happens spiritually. So um, if you think about it from that perspective and you think about coming to church and we have this great hallelujah service at church on Sunday morning and maybe we see somebody get saved and people are 
crying and shouting and praising the Lord. And you try to go then after church a couple of hours later and write that down and explain what that looked like. That's a hard thing to do. Okay. And so each of us have a different perspective. Jay's sitting over here on this side of the church and I'm sitting over here on this side of the church. So even if we tried to write down the exact same service, we would probably write it from a little different perspective. He's seeing what happened over here and I'm seeing what happened over here. Um, so it's hard to write down naturally, I guess, what happens spiritually. But that's what John's doing. So I want to start off in Matthew chapter 17. That's where I'm just going to start there and read a couple of verses. So Matthew chapter 17. So I'll tell you right up front, I'm not trying to hide the ball from you. I believe that this John who is an apostle is the same John who wrote the book of Revelations, okay? Now, there's a little disagreement amongst that. I cannot 100% prove it, but I, that's my belief, and I'll tell you why, that I think that's the case. Okay, chapter 17, we're just going to read the first few verses. And, and after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John. Now, James and John are biological brothers, so the two of them and... Peter, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with them. And if we jump on down in uh, verse 6, and when his disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. God, God actually, well, verse 5. And when he spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which saith, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when his disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. So John experiences this and sees this, transfiguration take place. He sees something I've never seen. None of you have ever seen that. Now, we've seen some great things, but we haven't seen this. All right? Now, four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, if you go on down here, Jesus tells them, don't, he tells the three of these guys that are up there, Peter, James, and John, don't tell anybody about this until after I'm resurrected, which I don't know if they understood what he was saying, but that's what he told them. Four Gospels. There's three times that this Mount of Transfiguration is discussed. It's discussed in Matthew. It's discussed in Mark. It's discussed in Luke. To my knowledge, it's nowhere in the Gospel of John. I don't believe John wrote about it in the Gospel of John. If he did, I missed it, okay? But I believe this same John uses a lot of what he saw in writing during his writing of the book of Revelation. That's one of the reasons I think it's the same person. There's some other reasons, but I think it's the same person. But, so he has this experience, and later he writes this, this book of Revelation, and he talks about these wonderful, marvelous things that God is showing him. And I think this memory of this Mount of Transfiguration is the backdrop for that. So, 
that's kind of where we'll start. Does anybody have any comments on that before we, we move on into the book of Revelation? All right. The book of Revelation. What is the book of Revelation? Revelation 1.1, okay? The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, Brother Denny helped me with this when he taught out here years ago in the fellowship hall, and he taught a lot for several months about the, uh, the book of Revelation. If you do not see the revelation of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation, you're looking in the wrong direction. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right? Now, there's beasts, and there's elders, and there's uh, angels, and there's fire, and, you know, and there's a throne. I mean, it can sound like, you know, uh, uh, a scary movie. If you read through this, and, you're, and your mind's not in the right place, if you're not looking at it right, but you got to go back. The revelation of Jesus Christ told by John. Okay, so that's, keep that in mind. So now let's go, and I'm working my way to chapter 7, but we need to go to chapter 4. All right, the first three verses of Revelation, John is talking to the churches in Asia. He's right, and he writes to each one of them, seven churches, and he writes something to each one of them. We're not going to touch on that. But we've got to start in chapter 4 because it tells where John is and what he is seeing and you can't, I can't really get on and try to explain chapter 7 with at, last, at least discussing chapter 4 for a minute. So this is John writing. After this, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. Well, that sounds pretty cool. All right. And the first voice which I heard was as it were a trumpet talking with me, come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. So the Holy Spirit is speaking to John, and he's trying to write it down and explain what's happening, a door in heaven. I don't know about you guys, but I'm not always in a spiritual frame of mind. I go to work, and I'm working on things, or I'm at home maybe watching the ball game, and I'm not always in a spiritual frame of mind. But what John's saying here is, I had an opportunity here to converse with the Holy Ghost, talk to God, and he's going to show me some things. And, and so John's telling you, and this voice I heard is like a trumpet. So, I mean, there's something good going on here, okay? And immediately I was in the Spirit. So there you go, all right? If, 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 I, if God wants to talk to me, he's going to talk to me, and I'm going to have a spiritual connection, all right? There's going to be a spiritual uh, connection. I'm going to be able to feel and tell that that's, that's the spirit. And behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in, the sight upon, in sight like upon an emerald. So this beautiful thing that John's looking at here, I think John's thinking back to the Mount of Transfiguration when he saw Jesus transfigure and he heard God talking to him out of a cloud. I mean, I, I think he's trying to describe what he saw. I mean, I, this has been in his mind, all right? Just my opinion, but I think that's 
where he's getting this. Now, certainly God could show him all this without having that experience back there. I'm not saying he couldn't, but I think that's what he's drawing on. Now, let's go. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. Uh, let's jump on down. I want to read. Um, in verse 7, uh, and he just said, he, and there were four beasts that were there in the midst as well. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast was like a calf, and the third beast was like a face of a man. The fourth beast was like a flying eagle. Now these same four beasts are back in Ezekiel. And if you want a real good tutorial, get on the archive, because our pastor preached on that about a year ago, and he preached and connected up these four beasts and the four beasts in Ezekiel. Same four beasts, one of them's described a little different, but the same four. Don't have time to get into all that right now. And when the beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat upon the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever, uh, saying, Thou art worthy, uh, thou hast created all things. So <clears throat> great picture here of what's going on. When is this? Okay. Now, certainly... I'm not going to argue with you if you say, well, gee, there's going to be a picture of that at the when everything's done, and that, that may look like what, what's going on in heaven, okay? I think all of those things are going to be there. But I don't think that's what John is primarily describing here. I think what John is describing here took place on Helen Avenue, on a dirt pile in the backyard in September or October of 1973. All right. Well, what in the world are you talking about? All right. Well, let's go on. Chapter 7. Let's get there and I'll, I'll tell you. All right. So the, the lesson starts in verse 9. But I want to just, so I'm not going to read a whole lot of it. I just want to summarize what takes place in verses 1 through 8. These 24 seats that were the 24 seats that the elders sat in are made up of 24 people that are represented pretty clearly in the Old Testament 12 and in the New Testament 12, all right? And in the Old Testament 12, it is the 12 tribes of Israel. And in the New Testament 12, it's the 12 apostles, make up 24, all right? So am I saying that there's two different churches? Well, I don't have a lot of time to get into this, but there's one church. Those 24 really represent the one church. Now, it's split right down the middle with 12 of those being before Christ and 12 of them coming after Christ, okay? But if you look at the description of the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, there are two cherubims made out of gold and they touch their wings touch over the mercy seat so why is that important well there's no gap in salvation salvation is from the beginning all the way to the end if you look at the temple uh, that Solomon built he built a room in the temple and he put 
two cherubims in there and their wings touch one wall and come to the middle and the two wings touch and they go all the way and touch the other wall. So there's salvation from the beginning of time until the last person gets saved. That mercy seat is representative of that. Now here's the, here's the beautiful piece of this. So I said, are there two churches? No, one church. That, those two cherubims over the mercy seat made out of one piece of beaten gold, all right? One church. And that mercy seat that's under is mercy and salvation from the beginning of time all the way to the end of time. But here in Revelation, we got 24 seats. That's the 24 elders, all right? So this has to be at the end of time as we know it, right? Because at least after Christ, right? Do you think? I don't. I think these 24 elders were there and they were when Adam got saved. Those same 24 elders were there. And this picture that we get here in the seventh chapter of Revelation, which is a picture of salvation, took place when Adam got saved. And it took place when Abraham got saved, and it took place when David got saved, and it took place when Matthew and Luke and Mark and John got saved, and it took place when I got saved. And if we get anybody saved here this morning, it'll take place here this morning. And when the last person gets saved and time ends, these same 24 will be there. Because it's a picture of the church, all right? And there is no salvation without the church being present. All right? So think about this. And I love this. So all 24. So that's, if you want to break it down and call it that, I won't argue with you. If you want to call that the law church and the grace church, I understand the designation. But that means everybody that's in the church, because they're really representative, but everybody that's in the church from the beginning of time until the end of time is present every time somebody gets an opportunity to be saved. And if they get saved, the whole church is there. How cool is that? So I don't mean to say that my grandfather, who's been gone for you know 28 years, I don't mean to say that I think he's floating around here looking at what's going on. That's not what I mean. But spiritually... Him and everybody else that aren't here physically anymore are here spiritually when somebody gets saved. I think that's pretty cool. I've heard Dad preach that we're all in God's hand. God's hand isn't affected by time. So if we're all in God's hand, whether we're on this side of the river or the other side of the river, we're all here. So I think that's pretty neat. So... The first eight verses describe these 12 elders, and it talks about the 12 tribes, and it says there's 144,000 souls that John can identify. So I don't think that that means that there's only 144,000 people saved prior to Christ or in, in Israel prior to Christ. That isn't what I think that means at all. It's just a representative number. 12 is a number of completeness. So 144 is 12 twelves. I mean, it's just saying that everybody that wanted to get saved back there got saved. All right. So verse 9, I got to hurry along. I'm going to run out of time. 
After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindred and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. So we've got this 144,000, we've got the 12 elders, and now we've got this number that no man can number. All right? So reminds me of God talking to Abraham, and he said, I promise you that your seed is going to be as the sands of the sea and the stars of the heaven. That group that no man can number is talking about the same group of people. All right? Abraham's promise was a spiritual promise. Now, God did guarantee him a son, and he had one, but it was representative of what is happening spiritually. It's the spiritual nation of Israel, all right? So that's, that's what we're talking about here. So what's that mean? If you've been saved, you're part of that spiritual nation of Israel. This number that no man can number, we're in that number. If you've been saved, you're part of that. All right, so why do I think that? This, this great multitude, which no man could number, all nations, this is talking naturally. I mean, you don't have to be born in, in the United States to have salvation. Any nation, kindred, people, tongue, none of that matters. It's offered to everybody freely. And these, they're standing before the throne. So God's sitting on the throne and before the Lamb. The Lamb is Christ. He was as a Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And again, that's why I, I say I think this has taken place, this gathering spiritually has taken place every time salvation has occurred from the beginning of time until the end. When I got saved, naturally it was just me and my cousin Joe there. But spiritually, this gathering was there. Um, clothed in white robes. White signifying pure and clean, uh, perfect. So when we get saved, God puts on a new outfit for us. And I love the song that Sister Prudy sings about the old robe. I had an old robe that was dirty and filthy, but I laid that off and, and God clothed me with a, with a clean white robe. So I'm in that, that multitude that no man can number wearing my white robe and palms in their hand. So what's the significance of a palm? <clears throat> Anybody got any ideas? I mean, my mind immediately goes to when Christ entered into Jerusalem, you know, and they, were, they had the palms and laid them down and were waving them at him. But palm has a significance biblically, uh, and it is victory, triumph, eternal life, peace. All right, so that's the significance here. I mean, this, everybody that's in this number's got eternal life. We've got peace. In our soul, we've got the victory through Jesus Christ. Um, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. So it's making clear right here that the person on the throne is God, all right? 
and Jesus, the Lamb, is in this is in this group as well. So we've got God, and we've got Jesus standing here, the Lamb, and we've got the church. That's I mean, those are the things that you need to have a a salvation experience. You're not going to have salvation without the church. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts, there's those four beasts again, and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God. All right? So there's a, there's a worship going on here uh, that, again, descriptive of what I hope we have this morning. And I, I believe that we will. So let's talk about these these four beasts here just real quickly. So there's a lion, there's a man, face of a man, there's an ox, and there's an eagle. Uh, like I said, if, if you want a, a great example, go look that up. You can find it on the archives, uh, and our pastor does a great job of explaining all those. But uh, the lion and the face of a man that lion is the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's, that's representative of Christ. And he came as a man. He had to come and take on this flesh in order to provide our uh, salvation and our justification. And then the other two, uh, an ox is representative of the church and the power in the, that God gives the church if we'll move together. And a lot of times ox are paired together, two of them, to really get the most power. And then an eagle, representative of what God will do for us, and we can soar like an eagle. You know, if we wait on him, we can mount up and take wings like an eagle. So there's, there's lots of things in there. But So these, uh, the beast is a living creature. I mean, that's what this is describing here. So it's not describing a monster, all right? It's, it's describing, it's just another way of saying uh, Jesus and the church are here together, and they're part of this meeting that's going on. And the 24 elders, again, representative of the church, and God sitting on his throne. And the lamb is certainly there. And the lamb, it's so important that represented as a lamb because he's been as a lamb slain from the foundation of the earth all the way through. So that's what the meeting is that's taking place here. Saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, now this is John writing, okay? And so, uh, so that you understand, there, there was a book here, and John's describing this book, and the book's got seven seals on it, and six of the seals have already been opened before the seventh chapter starts. And so this is really John explaining, and when that seventh seal gets opened, Really, when each one of the seals gets opened, it's an example of salvation. But when, especially when that seventh seal gets opened, representative that salvation is offered and been accepted by the person uh, that is, is under conviction at that point. So John is saying right here, you know, what's happened, six of the seals have been opened, and he's describing this communication that's taking place. It's a person that's under conviction. I mean, if you read all this, and he's explaining it, the first, you know, seven or eight verses, you know, what's taking place. And then if you read chapter 8, 
I think he's explaining how he felt as he was under conviction. And he's talking to one of these elders. Which one of the elders is it? I don't know. You'll have to ask somebody smarter than me because I don't know which one of the elders it is. But it was one of the elders that was authorized uh, to talk. I mean, to me, the gospel and the spirit are talking to John. But, I mean, there may have been one of the specific elders that he's referring to, but he doesn't say that. So this, this elder asks him a question. And one of the elders answering, saying to me, what are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? He's asking him, who are these people? Where'd they come from? I don't know about you, but when I was under conviction, I was looking at the church going, they've got something I don't have. I don't feel good in my soul. I knew I wasn't where I needed to be, and I'm looking around at the church thinking, how do I get where they're at? I want what they've got. And so I think that's what's going on here. I think John is explaining and telling you how he felt when he was in a, a spot of being under conviction. And here's what John says to him. And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. John's saying, I'm not, re I'm not really sure. I, I mean, I'm trying to figure this out. But you, you know, explain to me who they are. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation." And have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, again, like I said at the very beginning, if you want to say, well, gee, there's going to be a meeting like this in heaven when time is over with people that are saved and got white robes and have come through great tribulation, I'm not going to disagree with you. If you've been saved, you're going to be there. But that describes people that are meeting here this morning that are saved, all right? Uh, we don't have to put it down till there. We, it, it's happening right here this morning. Um, so great tribulation. Is that some, again, is that some scary movie situation? Some folks would have you think. And the greatest tribulation that I ever experienced was when I was lost. And again, I think that's what, you know, John is describing here. He's under conviction. They're explaining what it felt like to be under conviction. Now, don't get me wrong. At the point John writes this, he's saved, but he can certainly look back and remember what it felt like. He's in the spirit. He's a saved person. I'm not saying he's not saved here. He certainly is. But so great tribulation. Who are these people? John's saying, I don't know who they are. Who are they? Well, these are people that have been saved, have got on white robes, Washed in the blood of the Lamb, again, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Salvation has been the same from Adam to the last person. Adam got saved looking forward. We're getting saved looking back, but it's the same Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. Now, in this verse right here, it's a very important word that to me makes it very clear that this is talking about now and a salvation experience now and isn't referring only to an end of time gathering. Night. 
there going to be any night in heaven? The Bible tells us there's not. There's no darkness there. We're going to be in the presence of the sun, S-O-N, as, as Vic used to like to say, not the S-U-N, the S-O-N. We're going to be in the presence of the sun who's going to light everything. There's no darkness there. So if this is referring only to an end-of-time meeting in heaven, why would there need to be an explanation of night in there? My opinion, there wouldn't be. So that's why I'm saying I won't disagree with you that this a meeting like this will happen at the end with all of the church and all of you know all the redeemed certainly it will but i think this is describing again what i said what's taking place right here because i'm saved i've got god in my soul but boy i go through some dark times right everybody in here does so Anybody have, I, I've ran off and haven't given any room for comments. Anybody got any comments? I know Carl had a couple things written down, and I probably ran right over what he had, so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. All right, so let me read that again, uh, verse 15. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. So, God is dwelling among us. I mean, if we've been saved, you know, God is, is among us. So that's certainly what that's saying. Uh, the other thing I wanted to touch on here uh, is uh, serve him day and night in his temple. Now, I mentioned the temple that Solomon built earlier. And certainly you can connect that. I mean, I, I think as God's people, we need to come to church. Uh, but I really think this is talking about this temple all right and over in corinthians uh let me see i think i've got it marked corinthians 6 and 19 and probably read 20 as well uh, so this is paul writing to the church in corinth what know ye not that your body is the temple of the holy ghost which is in you which ye have of god and ye are not your own for ye are bought with a price Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That makes it pretty clear. I mean, this body is a temple. We need to take care of it. Uh, you know, if I'm out doing ungodly things and affecting this body, and that ruins my testimony, I can't glorify God with my spirit if I've tarnished up this body so bad that nobody's got any confidence in me, all right? So we've got an obligation. We're not ours anymore. We're bought by a price. And while we focus primarily on that soul, there is an obligation that we have. God keeps the soul, but we've got to keep this body uh, in, a, in a position so that when God moves in us and we, he tells us, glorify me through your, through your spirit, that this body's in a place that we can do that, you know. And I also think, I'll just get over on this for a minute, and I know Baptists don't like to talk about this, but I also think that means from a physical standpoint, from a health standpoint, we need to take care of this, you know. Uh, if we eat too much fried chicken, you know, we can 
clog up our arteries and have a problem there from a health standpoint. So is that primarily what it means? No, but it, does it cover that as well? Yeah, I think it does. You read that there in Corinthians, I think he's, I think that you can certainly put that interpretation on it. So if you're upset about that, talk to Carl after Sunday school. <laughs> he amen me. So. <laughs> uh, Good, thank you. Verse 16, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sunlight on them nor any heat. So, they shall hunger no more. Book of John, St. John, tells several different places where it talks about Christ as the bread of life. Okay, so he's describing how we're going to be if we're saved. And now this part right here, is talking about on our in our soul. He's the bread of life. Does that mean that I don't get hungry and need to go over, you know, either go home or go to a restaurant or somewhere and eat? No. This natural man gets hungry. But that spiritual man doesn't. Uh, neither thirst anymore. Uh, think about the woman at the well. Christ is a living water. And he said, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for living water, and I would have given you a drink. So, again, spiritually. And um, nor sunlight on them, nor any heat. Well, he, he's, I mean, he's our refuge. I mean, and you think about if you're in a desert country, uh, you don't want to be out in the, you know, the hot sun. I mean, this world can be like a, a desert country uh, spiritually uh, to us sometimes. But he's our refuge. He's our shelter. Uh, and Psalms 91, I'm going to go get that. I think I've got time here real quick. Psalms 91, love this scripture. Uh, one and uh, two. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. So if you're in a hot place, think about if you could get someplace that you get into a shadow of something. Everybody's been out in the hot sun before, had somebody tall standing beside them. You know, you kind of get around in their shadow and let them block that from you. Uh, feels pretty good. Just being in the shade just a little bit will make a big difference. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, and him will I trust. Um, so let me get here. Uh, and so uh, for the lamb, which is, this is verse 17, the last verse in the lesson. For the lamb, which is in the midst of the throne, shall feed them. Again, this talking about Jesus. He shall lead them unto living fountains of water and shall wipe away all tears from their eyes um, and if you go back over in, ver in chapter 4 it was one of the verses I don't think that I read but when John first looking at this book and realizing that this book 
that there was no man worthy to open this book because none of us are worthy of salvation. Okay, that's what that's saying. The elder said, weep not, John. So here he's telling him, you don't need to weep. The lamb has provided salvation. He's opened all the seals. There's no reason to weep. So we've got salvation. It's available to us. And what a great picture that these verses here are of the church. And uh, so does anybody have any comments?